Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. And special thanks to a new Studs patron from beautiful Tinley Park, Illinois, Mike Merzinski. Now, Mike Merzinski is a surgical nurse and was a guest on season three of Studs. If you haven't listened to his episode, you definitely should. He made me cry, but that's not why you should tune in. You should tune in because Mike is other level bright and beautiful. You know, it seems like a lot of guests and friends of guests on the podcast are keen to patronize my project. And I'm grateful, super grateful for the patronage. Mike, you were such a kind and vulnerable and engaging guest. You surely didn't need to do anything further. But you did, and I'm honored that you did. It brings me tremendous joy to know that you're listening and that you support this podcast. And hey out there, if you're a loyal listener and you like to support independent creators, please support Studs over at patreon.com studs. I link to it in the show notes. Look, I'm going to keep Studs free for you, and I'm not going to pressure you to drop your hard-earned bucks on my podcast. But if you dig Studs and you want to do your part to keep it going, I offer a range of rewards for your support. You can get some pretty cool stuff for like 50 cents an episode. Check it out, patreon.com slash studs. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, and there's another way you can support the podcast. I've been getting a bunch of questions from listeners, and I'm going to do a listener question episode coming up real soon here. So if you have any questions whatsoever about the intent, the process, the ambition, the tone, the production, anything about it, Hit me up at studspod at gmail.com. Find me at Facebook, Studs Podcast Berlin, or tweet at me, at studspod. By the way, in case you've been paying attention, I don't know how to use Twitter. It's one of my summer goals. I'll figure it out. And I guess I have to start an Instagram page? Ah, I don't know about all this. But if the goal is to give a microphone to real working people in an effort to challenge the seeming hegemony of political pablum and celebrity gossip, then I guess I got to figure out social media. And like SEO, apparently I have to think about search engine optimization. I don't know. Nay, summer's around the bend and I'm learning new things. So yeah, summer's in the air. Show a little love. Show a little support. Head over to the Patreon page. Shoot me a question that I could answer on the Q&A episode. Maybe just tell a friend or two about the podcast. Shoot them a link to your favorite episode. Tell them why they should listen. You could twist their arm a little bit. I don't mind. Hey, you might want to shoot them this episode. This is kind of a perfect episode of Studs. Sam Tatel is the founder and the president of Companions for Seniors, a small Chicago-based company that helps seniors live independently and with dignity in the comfort of their own homes. Sam fosters community 
and he nurtures meaningful relationships. In doing so, he's cultivated some hard-earned wisdom about aging and dying and living. Sam walks us through the joys and the challenges of working with the elderly. He talks about funerals and shiva and corned beef and telling dirty jokes to old ladies. The kid's a real mensch. So join me in conversation with one of Chicago's finest kosher treats, Sam Tatel. Oh, and be sure to stick around to the very end if you want to find out why I became a history teacher. I'm serious. Sam Tatel, welcome to Studs. It is truly a pleasure to have you. Thanks for being here. How do you describe what you do? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. So what I do is I'm the president of Companions for Seniors Incorporated in Chicago, Illinois. Our company provides companions, drivers, caregivers for the elderly of the Chicagoland area. And I am the president and founder of that organization. So I do everything that a president of a small business would do, which comes out to be a lot of different hats. And I look forward to seeing you try those hats on. I'm super excited about it. Now, I know that you were once a literature student at university, and I just wonder how you pivoted from studying literature to this path of yours of being the president of a company. Well, to be frank, Daniel, I didn't know what I wanted to do at the <laughs> University of Iowa. Yeah. So literature was an easy fall into because we had a read anyways at Iowa and I was known for their English department. Not that I was in the writer's workshop, which they're really well known for, but they had all those people who were in the writer's workshop teaching us undergraduates. And it was a, a wonderful liberal arts education. And what I'm grateful for to the University of Iowa is that it taught me how to think. And it has really done a good job for me in my current position because I have to think on my feet a lot. So once I graduated with a degree in English literature, it didn't qualify me to do a whole lot of real world work things. So I did bounce around from job to job before I found my true calling, which Daniel, I could tell you about how I bounced around a little bit if you'd like. I'd love it, please. Okay, so I worked a lot of jobs that I hated for lack of a better word. <laughs> and that's how I found my true calling. I think that was helpful for me to work a lot of jobs that I couldn't stand. I was a stockbroker. I was a bank teller. And then I moved into the retail world where I was a retail store manager of a big box location. And none of these jobs were right for me. I just couldn't, in the, in the store that I was working, I had a stack blenders and I had a stack cookware. And this was not very gratifying to me. How many blenders could I sell in a day? I was very upset. And I heard about a friend of mine who was volunteering at the Council for Jewish Elderly, which is an elder care organization in the city of Chicago. And he knew I was unhappy in retail life. So he said, why don't you come with me one Thursday to CJE and see if you like volunteering there? Well, the long and the short of it is I loved it. And I loved it so much, I got a job there because I thought this is really what I was meant to do. I was meant to work with seniors. 
I personally love senior citizens. I find them interesting. I find them hilarious in many occasions, engaging, thoughtful. Sometimes they are lonely or egocentric, and I like to learn about those sort of things and engage with them. So I finally figured out what I was meant to do at the ripe old age of 30. Was there a moment or a person with whom you worked that catalyzed your interest in working with the elderly? Well, it turns out the seeds were planted much earlier. When I was a kid, 12, 13, 14, my parents would send me to Naples, Florida for spring break every year. My grandparents lived in Naples, Florida. They were snowbirds. And they would send me down there and I would hang out with my grandparents and their friends. And they were a bunch of old Jewish people who would sit around and tell jokes in Yiddish and we'd go fishing and we'd go to dinner at 4.30 and we'd go play (laughs) golf. And they were funny and they were interesting. and, And they thought it was strange that a kid, let's say 13 years old, was coming down to visit with them and hang out with them and laughing with them. My parents taught me to respect older people and to listen. And I'm grateful that they did that because that was the beginning of my calling. Who knew that I would make a career out of working with senior citizens? But in fact, even back then in Naples, my grandparents and their friends used to say, Sam, someday you should open a nursing home. You'd be great running a nursing home. Because back then, that was really all that was available to senior citizens when they got older. You got older, you go to a nursing home. Nowadays, of course, in the United States, there's lots of other options. There's independent living. There's what they call assisted living. There are still nursing care facilities. And there's, of course, living at home with a caregiver, which is the business that I'm in. So even back then, they said, Sam, you should you should be in the senior business. I kind of wish I would have listened to him then and not worked <laughs> a bunch of crappy jobs after college. But I finally figured out what I was meant to do. And the seeds were planted early. Can you dive into exactly what it was and what it is about working with elderly communities and spending time with the elderly that inspires and motivates you? I I, I ask because there is this reticence, I think, that people have in um, being with the elderly. I think it inspires a lot of fear and discomfort and anxiety among younger people. I think there's a tendency, particularly in the U.S., to sort of like shun or otherwise dismiss the elderly. But you were really drawn to it in a seemingly organic way and from a young age. So what is it about spending time with older people that really inspires, encourages, and motivates you? Well, I find them infinitely interesting, first of all. I think they are funny in in general. They are sometimes quirky. I say quirky because sometimes they've lived alone for a while. And when people live alone for a while, they tend to become idiosyncratic. So funny, quirky, interesting. They've lived through things that I can't even dream of. Some of them lived through the Depression, World War II, Vietnam, Richard Nixon, they've seen so many things and they could tell me about them. In fact, their memories are better back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s than for items that happened yesterday. For example, they can't tell me what they had for breakfast, but they could tell me where they were on 
June 6th, 1944, if I have the correct date for D-Day. You do. They could tell me where they were, you know, and what they were doing. I find that mind-boggling. So the fact that I like being around them is a good start. I also happen to be a person who is infinitely patient. It has something to do with my upbringing, but I have patience for many, many things. And you have to be patient in dealing with older people because it's possible you might hear the same story three times in an hour. It's possible. It's possible that they don't move very quickly. So if you're in a hurry, you probably don't want to be around an older person because they just don't move so fast. They like things the way they like them, when they like them and how they like them. And I have no problem with that. I have no problem with facilitating whatever they want. Daniel, as an aside, I don't know if I answered your question. (laughs) You totally answered my question. And I have to tell you, I have this near fetish for Genesis stories. So I'm hoping that you can share the Genesis story of Companions for Seniors with me. So you're volunteering and then you end up working with a council for Jewish elderly. And then at some point you decide that you're going to dive in and invest your work life into this passion that you have. Will you share with me the Genesis story of Companions for Seniors? Sure. So I was working for the Council for Jewish Elderly, and this is 2004, and I had just gotten married, and my wife and I had just moved into our first condominium, starting to make mortgage payments. And I realized that I would never make a significant income working for a nonprofit Jewish organization in Chicago. And I did want to make some income. And I thought, what better time than now to start 2004? My wife was a teacher, so she supported us for a while while I started this business. So the idea was I was working at CJE. I was helping people eat. I was helping people get to the bathroom. I was doing activities with people. Uh, We would do music activities, fitness activities at uh, one of the centers. And I thought to myself, you know, what if I started my own business? And heck, what if I called Companions for Seniors? And I'll be the first companion. And I got to tell you, that was it. I put an ad in the paper. Like back then, there was a thing called Chicago Jewish News. I think that's where I put the first ad. And the ad said something like, college graduate will drive you to your doctor's appointments. Uh, Safe car, reliable person. And then I called it Companions for Seniors. And I sat on my couch and I waited. (laughs) I waited for the phone to ring. And I don't know if that's how other entrepreneurs in the service business began, but that's how I began. And I waited and I got a call here. Hey, can you take me to the doctor next Tuesday? Yeah, sure. Uh, Another call. Hey, can you take me to O'Hare? I got to fly out of town. Yes. But then the calls started coming more frequently and calls started coming in for female caregivers like Sam, can you get me a caregiver for my mother? She lives over on Tui and she needs somebody every day just to check in on her, give her lunch and make sure she took her pills. I'm like, yeah. So I had to hire my first female caregiver. And that's kind of how it grew. It grew very organically, as people like to say. As I got the calls, I had to start becoming more of a professional organization. Back then, you didn't even need a license to be a non-medical agency in the state of Illinois. Now you need a license. Now you need insurance. 
So I had to figure out what insurance I needed. I had to get a lawyer. I had to incorporate. I had to get a car that seniors could easily get into and out of. So I just learned on the fly. And once again, I was the very first companion. So I knew how to do the job. I knew how to train my staff. And I looked for people who were similar to me, people who were compassionate, patient, and who liked being around the elderly. That's what I tell people looking for a job. Do you like being around the elderly? That's my first question. Because if they don't say a definitive yes, I'm like, well, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't for you. So can you give me a sense of the pace at which the business began to scale up? So 2004, you're sitting in your living room on the north side of Chicago, kind (laughs) of waiting for calls. You had a couple calls here and there. Give me a little bit of a timetable. Okay. So the first year was slow. (laughs) And then year number two was uh, picked up a little bit. I remember in year number two, I had to hire a bookkeeper because I didn't know how to keep the books for a business, file taxes, file uh, K-1s. I still have the same bookkeeper to this day, and she used to come to my home, and of course now she comes to my office. So she's grown right along with us. Year three, I might have made some money. Uh, I don't think I was in the black, as they say, until year three. And then year four, we grew a little bit more, and I brought on more staff. I had to hire somebody in the office to help me with insurance filings and scheduling. I had to get software to schedule people to make sure they were in the right place at the right time. And then, then we grew by about 20% every year since then. So I got to say, I'm grateful for that. To grow 20% every year that we've been in business, well, I, I am grateful. That's the only thing I can think of. Oh, except for COVID. We sure didn't do great during COVID, which we could talk about if you want. But uh, every year, we've, we've done better than the year before. Can you just give me a sense of what it felt like to launch this business? Well, to be frank, Daniel, I had a lot of fear because I didn't know what else I was going to do. And fear was a very good motivator for a while. Fear got me out of bed at 530 in the morning. Fear got me to never say no to a job. I mean, the first three years, I never said no, no matter how big or how small the job was. So that is... (laughs) a motivating factor. Growing up, there were many members of my family who were entrepreneurs. My father was a dentist. He started his own business. Two uncles had their own law practice. I had a cousin who was a pharmacist, another cousin who was a real estate investment person. Everybody started their own business. So I thought one day I'm going to start my own business. I just didn't know it wasn't going to be a straight line. And once I started the business, It wasn't exactly a straight line. We are trending upward, as I said, but it's never been a straight line. I've learned a lot along the way. I'll bet you have. I guess before we dive too deep, it might be useful for us to dive straight into the services that Companions for Seniors offers. What do you all do? Okay. We have drivers, for example, that will take you anywhere you need to go. These drivers will pick you up anywhere you live and take you to the doctor. We do a lot of doctor appointments. Take you to the symphony. People like to go to Chicago Symphony. Take you to the hair salon, the pharmacist, the bank, the grocery store. And what our drivers will do is 
they won't just leave you there. <laughs> it's not like an Uber company will help you in and out of the car. Some people need help off the curb, into and out of the car. Some people need help walking up and down the grocery aisles, picking out stuff. Maybe they get tired. That's a lot of walking up and down grocery aisles. And sometimes littler old ladies can't reach the shelf that they want to reach. So our driver will reach for the food that they want, put it in the cart. They'll help them get back to their house and unpack their groceries. Uh, we used to have a woman who would call us just when she needed a light bulb changed because she didn't want to get on a ladder. So I used to send a driver over there, say, go help Mrs. Johnson change a light bulb today. So those are the drivers. We also have what I would call companions. Some people are doing okay, an older person. They're in their home and they're doing okay, but they're isolated, they're lonely. And maybe they need somebody to come over there, make them lunch, sit there and eat lunch with them. I can't tell you what a pick-me-up it is for an older person to have a, a young companion come in, make them lunch, make them a nutritious lunch, because perhaps they're not eating exactly as they should. So our companion will go in there, make them lunch, sit with them, see how they're doing. Do you need anything? Hey, did you get the mail today? Hey, uh, do you need anything from Walgreens? So that's what a companion does. They actually provide companionship to an older person. And then we also have caregivers. And caregivers is more of a hands-on task. A caregiver comes in when perhaps you can no longer take a shower by yourself safely anymore. A caregiver can help you get dressed. Sometimes it's not easy to put on those socks and shoes if you can't reach your feet anymore or if you have balance issues. A caregiver can make sure you're walking properly, taking the right medication at the right time, make sure you're following a diet, make sure you're following any exercise program that a physical therapist or a doctor has set up. So it's kind of different levels of care if you follow me. The drivers are driving people who don't drive anymore. They don't need any other help. They just don't drive anymore. The companions are coming in and helping people who are maybe alone in their homes and need, you know, a visit, a little, just a little bit of care. And the caregivers are, are caring for people who need more hands-on care, showering, going to the toilet, getting dressed, walking around the apartment. So those are the different kind of levels of care that we could provide under the non-medical spectrum. We're what they call non-medical care. Now, given the challenges of the work that you're describing, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how you hire companions. Okay. Well, before COVID, people would see the name of our company, Companions for Seniors, and say, oh, I'd like to work for that. I could do that. Or no, I really don't want to. So if somebody already sees the name of the company and says, wow, I that looks like it's for me. That's a good start, in my opinion. So people would come to us before COVID. As you probably know, after COVID, there are so many jobs available out there. We are looking for good people right now. And finding good people is hard for a lot of different industries here in the United States. We do put ads on websites like Indeed.com, and we try and get people through there, and we screen them. We have to make sure that anybody we bring in is honest, that's a big one, is patient, is compassionate, is safe. We have to background check everybody. We have to fingerprint everybody because they're going into a situation with a person who is vulnerable. 
So we have to make sure that we check out people thoroughly before we send them out. And of course, we have to train them. This is how you lift a person properly without hurting yourself and the other. This is how you dispose of materials that need to be disposed of. This is what you do in the case of an emergency. So people have to go through some training and some rigorous background checks before they can be companions for seniors. To find them, we use our network of caregivers. If we have a caregiver who we like, we say, hey, do you know anybody who wants to work in this field? And usually they can refer us to a friend, a relative who also wants to be a caregiver. And sometimes we give them a little bonus, a referral bonus, because if they could bring us a high quality caregiver, that's worth something to us and we'll, uh, we'll reward them for that. Because of the vulnerability that your clients uh, have to endure, it is extra important that you find people who you know you can trust. And perhaps just the stresses of modern life make it such that not everybody's trustworthy all the time. Can you talk to me about the conversations that you have with prospective employees and give me a sense of how you can discern whether or not they're trustworthy and compassionate and patient? The first thing we do is we speak to them in the interview about their previous experience. It's highly likely that if they're coming to us, they have had some experience with senior citizens in the past. We're not usually a person's first job ever working with seniors. So we try to get a feel for them. What did you like about working with the elderly? What didn't you, I always wanna know what didn't you like? Because no job is perfect, as you know, Daniel. So we try and get a feel for them. And also I feel a lot more secure when we check their references. Who have they worked for in the past? Uh, I feel much better after we fingerprint a person. Also, we, some of the caregivers who come to us have experience with a particular elderly problem. For example, maybe they've worked with people who have dementia. So we'll try and match a caregiver that has experience working with dementia patients to a dementia patient. Perhaps they've worked with a patient in the past who needed oxygen due to COPD or emphysema. We're gonna put somebody who knows how to work with oxygen with a client who is using oxygen. But uh, we try to match up the caregivers with the clients to the best of our ability. So Sam, I trust your instincts and I'm sure you hire great people. And I trust that a lot of the time you're able to you know, match them with the optimal client. And I know that you do everything you can to train them. But no matter what, the work that your companions do is sometimes physically and very often really psychologically demanding. I guess I'm saying it's hard work. And I know that you want to support your employees, you want to support your clients, and I guess I just wonder how in your work you support your companions so that they can support the elderly. We really try not to overwork any of our companions because like you said, sometimes the job can be taxing. So we're always in touch with our companions. My office staff and I text with them all the time. We're all texting all the time. 
How are you doing? What's going on? How's Mrs. Johnson doing today? Do you need anything? Are you out of PPE? Do you need me to get you more PPE? We just try to make sure that the companions know that we're on their side and we are here to support them in their efforts. I believe that a happy employee is a productive employee. And I want our employees to be as happy as we can make them so that they are able to do their jobs effectively and that the client has a good experience. We're in the customer business. We want them to be happy. We want them to be safe. We want them to be healthy. And my staff and I will do whatever it takes to help the employees do their job to the best of their ability. I totally believe that you all will do whatever it takes to support them. I guess just to push on this a little bit, when you have Alzheimer's patients, when you have dementia patients, when you have patients who they're having the worst week or month of their life, perhaps they're having the last week or month of their life. Man, it's just hard work. So when your employees reach out to you and they're like, Sam, I'm... I don't know how much longer I can do this. I'm, I'm struggling. Like I'm, I'm sick of getting yelled at. I'm starting to lose my patience. I got my own problems at home. I, I, how do you support your colleagues who they're really struggling through the tough work? Usually my colleagues know what they're getting themselves into. Now that's not to say that there aren't surprises. But if we assign a caregiver to an Alzheimer's patient, they kind of know what is going to happen. Unfortunately, Alzheimer's patients don't get better, they get worse. So the caregiver knows this usually going in. And by the way, the caregiver gets to meet the patient and the patient gets to meet the caregiver before we start anything and whatever family members are interested in this meeting. And they have to get a feel for each other. And sometimes we go to a meeting and the client says, no, I don't want that person. Or the caregiver says, no, I don't think I can help that person. And that's kind of a gut reaction. So that's good for us. you got to stick with your gut a little bit when you first meet somebody. If we assign somebody to an Alzheimer's patient, the caregiver knows what's going to happen. There might be a lot of repeating themselves. There might be confusion. There might be agitation. There might be problems using the toilet or taking a shower. They might want to argue. They might get sad. So usually a caregiver is ready for these things. Now you're right, Daniel. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And sometimes they'll text me or my staff and say, hey, I need a break. You got to find somebody to cover for me next Thursday and Friday. I got to go home. I got to do my laundry. I got to go to church. I need a break. And we'll say, fine, we want to help you in any way we can. We don't want you overworked. That's not good for you. That's not good for your client. So we'll set up a break, a respite for that caregiver so they can get a reset in their lives. So what I want to tell you, Daniel, is that we support our caregivers any way we possibly can. Do you need a break? Do you need an afternoon off? Do you need me to talk to the family to get the family to supply different things for you, different items that you might need to do your job more effectively? Uh, we'll do whatever we can to help that caregiver do their job well. Can you walk me through what the conversations are like 
as you and your colleagues try to navigate your stresses, your anxieties, when your clients really deteriorate? Well, we talk amongst ourselves a lot and we commiserate because we're all in the industry of helping seniors. So we have some things in common. Sometimes those things are sad. Sometimes those things are funny. Sometimes those things are scary. And I could give you an example of those things, Daniel, if you want. Please. An example of a scary thing that could happen is a senior stops breathing while you're on shift with them. And of course, the first thing we're supposed to do is call 911, unless the family has advised us that they don't want us to call 911, like if they wanted us to call hospice or something like that. But that's a scary thing that happens to a caregiver, and it's happened to all of us where somebody has stopped breathing or somebody has fallen, and you have to call in some professionals like paramedics uh, to, to help you in that particular situation. An example of a sad thing that happens is we've all grown close to our clients and those then those clients have passed away. So in our line of work, we go to a lot of funerals. I do personally too, because I grow attached to these people who were our clients. I wanna say goodbye. I've grown to know the family, sometimes the daughter or the brother or the sister or the son. And I wanna to go to the funeral and say goodbye. As an aside, Daniel, I go to a lot of shivas and shivas are a wonderful way for people who are Jewish to say goodbye and eat a whole lot of corned beef. <laughs> uh, if you're uncomfortable talking about it, please tell me. I've been to some funerals in my time and regardless of the age of the person or the circumstances uh, that brought them uh, to the end, I find funerals to be, I, I want to say traumatic. It's definitely, I've never forgotten a funeral. They just leave such a profound impression on me. You go to a lot of funerals. Can you just give me a sense of what that's like? I go to a lot of funerals, and over the years, I've gotten more used to it. At first, I used to cry at every single funeral. Now, when I go to a funeral, I try to think of it as a celebration of that person's life. Because what often happens is the family gets up and tells wonderful stories about the person, funny stories, poignant things. And I get to see a side perhaps I didn't see because I met them when they were 85, 90 years old. I don't know what they were like when they were 30 and 40. So I do appreciate funerals as closure for me. Now it is sad because I become close to some of these people and then they pass on. But I'm also grateful for the fact that I helped make their final years perhaps a little more tolerable. One client once said to me, one of my early clients, that you make growing old not so bad. And I think I might get choked up thinking about her because uh, I can't think of a better compliment for the work that I do. Yeah, that is well-earned high praise. Hey, you mentioned the Shiva. 
And I'm not sure that all of our listeners know exactly what a Shiva is. Can you give us a quick breakdown of what Shiva is? And then I have a question about it. A Shiva is a mourning period for a deceased Jewish person. Oftentimes it lasts seven days. After the funeral for seven days, the family sits Shiva is what it's called. And they stay in their home and they receive guests and there's a lot of food. Everybody brings food. There's not so much alcohol. Jews don't drink alcohol during Shiva because they want to remember. They don't want to dull the pain and the remembrance. They want to remember. So I guess if you could dull your pain with chopped liver and corned beef, (laughs) we do that. But it's a little bit different. So sitting Shiva, the family receives people for seven days. And everybody comes in and tells stories and talks. And there are a few laughs and there's some prayers. You pray morning, noon and night if you're in a, uh, a religious Jewish home. And that's what a Shiva is. But like I said, it's, it's supposed to be a time of comfort for the grieving family. Thanks for setting the, the table uh, for us, setting it, setting it with corned beef and, <laughs> and liver, and pastrami, of course. So I, I have a, a quick question about it. Like, to put it bluntly, like, what's your Shiva game? Like you have to show up and you're there in earnest. You want to celebrate this person's life and you want to join in the morning and you want to provide solace. And I know that you do it in earnest with all of the humanity that you bring to everything that you do in your life. Our listeners are already recognizing that you're just good like that. At the same time, on some level, this is part of your work and you got to get back to work. So can you talk about how you sit Shiva given the kind of the, the, the dual roles that you have to inhabit in this precious and sacred environment? As it turns out, we are able to differentiate ourselves from our competitors by attending funerals and Shiva. It's not too common for people in my industry to attend a person's Shiva. And when I enter a Shiva house, I'm usually looking for a daughter or a son of the deceased to pay my respects. And I want to say thank you for letting us help your parent. And they were a great person. And I'm so sorry that they're gone. And usually they're very surprised to see me because they really didn't expect to hear from me again after their parent was gone. But... I think being a mensch is important and I want to be there to say goodbye also. By the way, they like when people eat at the Shiva. (laughs) There's so much food at the Shiva that after I pay my respects, they say, please, Sam, eat something. We've got coffee cake in the other room. And I am grateful to oblige in that respect because I like to eat. And I also, I, I, as you know, I like to kibitz. So I get a plate. I fill up my plate. I sit down on a folding chair in the living room. I usually don't know anybody except for the children of the deceased. And, you know, they're talking with other people. So I sit there and I eat and I listen and I stay about 20 minutes, half an hour. I say goodbye I pay my respects one more time and I leave and I have closure and the family 
feels the respect that I have for their loss. And also I get a nice meal. So I have to ask, and Sam, if this is a question that's too emotionally or psychologically fraught for you, please tell me. But if you see that the Shiva is being catered by Max and Benny's, Kaufman's, or Manny's, <laughs> which of these three corned beefs uh, would make you most happy? Oh, wow. This is a, a very important question regarding corned beef. Yes. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I can't tell the difference. I can only tell the difference between lean corned beef and regular corned beef because the lean corned beef has less fat on it. But I can't tell the difference between Manny's, Vienna beef, Max and Benny's, Kaufman's, New York bagel and Bialy. I'm sorry, I can't tell the difference. But, you know, I don't mind sampling them all. And on a similar level, and again, if this is too emotionally fraught for you, tell me, do you feel sort of empowered to know that if you happen to have a bunch of liver on the side of your face that no one's going to say anything because a bunch of other people have liver in the corner of their mouths also? Well, this is an important question. And the worst is when I get back to the car and I look in the rearview mirror <laughs> and I've got liver on my face or I've got chopped liver in my teeth. I'm like, oh, darn it. I just said goodbye to everybody with liver all over my face. And this has happened more than once, Dan. Yeah. No, I, I do have to say, though, having been to you know my share of shivas in my time, what you are saying couldn't be more true. The sheer amount of food, it is just, I mean, it's like... It's like the it's like the peak of the Roman Empire. It's a bona fide <laughs> smorgasbord, and you just have to like kind of control yourself. But that's the thing I gotta tell you, and perhaps you know this: food is comforting. Yeah. And when you can't think of a way to comfort somebody, food is a good way. When the Shiva family comes back from the funeral, they're supposed to sit down at the table, and people are supposed to bring them food. You're not even really supposed to ask. Uh, if you're working a Shiva house, if you're a friend, a relative, you make a plate and you give it to the person mourning. Uh, you know, if all else fails, feed them. Yeah. As a quick note, Dan, when I go to Shiva, something happens that I never expected. I sometimes get new business. Because I'm at a Shiva house and I'm paying respect, and usually when I pay respect, the daughter might even introduce me around saying, oh, this is Sam. He provided this caregiver and this caregiver was wonderful to my mother until the end. And sometimes that will net me new business. So it turns out that Shiva is sometimes sort of a networking event for me. Now, I swear to God, I don't go to network to find new business, but that is a, a pleasant side effect of going to a lot of Shivas. Yeah, I'd imagine. And I wholeheartedly believe you when you say that that's not why you go. Um, you are a bona fide mensch. I go for, I go for the chopped liver. <laughs> so listen, you know, you and I are both old Jews. Neither of us are getting younger. While Companions for Seniors will, of course, eagerly serve all clients, I get the sense that a substantial proportion of your clients are Jewish people in their twilight years. A lot of them have experienced or inherited substantial trauma. And I guess I just wonder how your work 
supports the diverse experiences and cultures of the Chicagoland Jewish communities? I would say that around 75% of our clients are Jewish. And it's because that's where I came from. I came from the conservative Jewish community in Chicago. And one of the first things I did after I started this business in 2004 is went around to any rabbi I knew or even didn't know and said, hey, I'm starting this business. I want to be a resource to your community. I don't want to pitch you anything. I don't want to sell you anything. I just want you to know, Rabbi, if you know of any people who need a ride to the doctor or who need a caregiver, I hope you will think of us. So that's how I got started. And that really got me on my feet. Also, CJE started referring cases to me because they knew me. They knew of me. They trusted me. So I did start off with let's say 100% Jewish clients. But as we start to grow, and we are in the city of Chicago, we are getting what I would call more Gentile clients. And we're starting to spread our wings into different communities. Let's say the Catholic community. There's many Catholics in Chicago. The uh, Chinese American community. There's a lot of Chinese Americans on the near south side. So we are becoming better known in other communities. Now, you mentioned trauma for older people. One thing that I like about older people is that they're tough, usually. Usually they're tough. If you get to be 90, there's a certain toughness about you uh, because you've probably faced physical problems. You've probably faced mental problems, emotional problems, meaning you face some hard things in life. Perhaps one of your children has passed. Perhaps you've been unemployed. Perhaps you've been sick and you've gotten over it. If you get to be 90 and you're still alive, you've seen a lot. And some of it is good and some of it is bad. So once again, Companions for Seniors does our best to support these people in their journey. And I always say to these people, whether they like it or not, we are here to support healthy habits. We are here to help you exercise, even if you're 90. We're going to walk around the block today. We are here to make sure that you eat something healthy today and not just candy all day, which is what you want to eat. We are here to make sure that you take the right pills at the right time, as according to your doctor. So we at Companions for Seniors encourage healthy habits. We want to make sure that you can be around as long as you want to be. So we will encourage you to do healthy things. Perhaps you will hate us for it, but that's what our mission is. Yeah. I can imagine that sometimes your clients say, but Sam, if I'm going to be honest with you, I really don't want to be around anymore. I lost my life partner. I've been to hell and back and I'm tired. How do you engage those impossibly difficult conversations? First of all, if I have a conversation like that, I try to stay positive. I try to find something positive in their life that they're living for. Often, I go to grandchildren or great-grandchildren because that's something that people get enormous pleasure from. Grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I try to stay positive. I try to think of something that will allow them to feel a little bit of happiness, even if it's for a moment. 
because there are some people who have had enough. Let's say they're 90, they're not feeling well, their friends around them are starting to pass away because they're in that age bracket, they're alone, perhaps their children live out of town, they're depressed. So sometimes we have to do a little pep talk. Perhaps sometimes we need to get out in the sunshine. There are some people who don't want to hear anything positive. They're very depressed and they're ready for God to take them. I've heard that many times. When will God take me already? And of course, the answer is, I don't know, because I don't and they don't know either. But like I said, I try to stay positive. I got to tell you, Sam, I'm really inspired by that. I also am kind of overwhelmed as I try to empathize and I think about what it must feel like to try to stay positive and to try to engage people when they're convinced that it's time to have God come and take them. I, I wonder if you'd be willing, and only if you're comfortable, could you maybe share a, like a specific story of a relationship like that? Sure, okay. One time, there was a man on the north side. His name was Sam. His name has been changed. And Sam had gone blind at the age of 89 because of macular degeneration. And he was very angry. And he wanted to die. And he would say to me, you know, hey, hey, Sam, how can I how can I kill myself? And I would say, oh, you don't want to kill yourself. You've got a wife. She's taking care of you. And he would say, well, that's why I want to kill myself. I don't want my wife taking care of me. I... Sorry, Dan. Give me a second. I told Sam, if the situations were reversed, wouldn't you take care of her? And he said, of course. I was trying to think of any reason for him to live his life. I would tell him, oh, it's this isn't that bad. We could get through this. Uh, don't you want to live a life with your wife here in your beautiful home? And there was nothing I could say that could convince this other Sam that he should continue living his life. And so I thought for a minute and I said, Sam, if you want to die, you could stop eating. And he looked so surprised and happy and his non-seeing eyes brightened up and opened up wide. And he said, hey, you know, that's a really good idea. He eventually fell down the stairs, broke his neck, and passed. Now, I don't know if he threw himself down the stairs. I mean, that is a possibility. I know that he never did the stop eating thing, but there was nothing I could do to convince him that his life was worth living. And eventually, I stopped trying uh, because this is what this man wanted. And I wanted to be honest with him, and I wanted to help him. And so the first thing that came to mind was, Sam, you could stop eating. You will die. That's one way to do it because his wife wasn't going to kill him. He asked his wife to kill him. So I'm sorry that this is such a dark story, Daniel, but sometimes this stuff happens. Sometimes people have had enough and they do want to die. I wonder if it gave him a certain reprieve or a sense of relief to know, like, yeah, I guess, I guess if I really... If I really wanted to end it, I do have that path. And maybe just knowing that in a way gave him some some comfort. Do you have the sense that maybe you just you gave him like 
just enough of an out that he could think about other things? Perhaps you're correct, because up until the point where I made my suggestion, he had a dark look on his face. He had a dark aura. He was upset. He was depressed. He was angry. And once I gave him a real suggestion, he brightened up like he turned a corner like, oh, oh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. So maybe I gave him an opening, an opening for a different path. And he felt perhaps now I'm in control of my path. I'm not an old, broken down blind man. Now I could do something about my situation. So that is a possibility in all of this. You know, you gave me a bit of an opening to ask this question that I'm desperately curious about. You want to be a voice of hope. You are indeed, quite accurately, I should say, a self-described mensch. You want to bring hope. You want to bring comfort. You want to be a good man. (laughs) in the Joel and Ethan Cohen sense, uh, right? You, 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 you really do. And I, I think you're there. I believe this about you. So you want to be this source of comfort and inspiration, yet not infrequently you are forced to deal with people who are suffering tremendous physical pain, They have existential anxieties. They have profound psychological woe. I guess I just wonder how you tap into your seemingly endless resource of empathy to kind of meet people where they're at. Dan, as you know, I like to kibitz. And one thing that I could do is talk to people. And when people are in pain, I would love to distract them in any sort of way. And I could do that through conversation. I've been in Chicago for a long time. I know a lot about Chicago. And these people whom I help have been in Chicago even a lot longer. So I try and take their mind off their pain. I'm like, hey, did you know that the Cubs are playing today? They're playing the Cardinals at 120. The Sox are in Detroit, you know, because they might be a North Side fan. They might be a South Side fan. I try to take their mind off anything. Oh, hey, Ravinia's opening up in Highland Park in July. You should go see CSO. It's anything to get their mind out of pain, anything to get their mind off of their sadness. I just try and help them turn a corner if at all possible. And I know a lot of ways to do that because I've been doing it for, well, practically my whole life. Like, I don't mind telling a dirty joke to an older lady. If you find a 93-year-old woman and tell her a dirty joke, first of all, they probably won't get offended because they've heard everything all before. (laughs) And it also will take their mind off their worries for about eight seconds. But I mean, it's eight seconds of relief and laughter. And I love that. I love that about my job. I love connecting with people. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's such a splendid way to go about it. You know, even if it's 10 seconds of relief, maybe that opens up the window for them to just find a comfortable breath and move on with their day. And if not, it's 10 seconds of relief. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Now, 
Sammy, in the past few years, uh, I know you lost both your parents. I lost one of mine. I can't help but wonder how your feelings about your work have evolved over the past, say, five years. When it's your own parents needing care, it's much different. I provide care, we provide care to many elderly people, but none of them were my parents. So when I had to start getting caregivers for my parents, it was a little rougher. But I guess that goes without saying. So I really try to remember that when I'm dealing with people, especially adult children. Let's say this adult daughter is 68 years old and helping to care for their 90-year-old mother. I try to relate to that 68-year-old daughter and remember how tough it was to get caregivers for my parents. So perhaps it made me even more empathetic than I ever was having to get caregivers for my parents and then watching those caregivers stay with them until they passed away. So much has changed in both of our lives over the last five to 10 years. I wonder what you know now about aging and dying that you didn't know a few years ago. Here's one thing I learned about dying. When a person knows that they're dying and they're going to go sometime soon, they start to withdraw. I saw both of my parents do it. My mother passed away in 2019 and my father passed away in 2020. And because I was spending a lot of time with them as they were dying, I saw them withdraw. Watching my father withdraw into himself as he was dying. And people would come to the house to see him and, and say goodbye to him. And he stopped being able to say goodbye to people because he was withdrawing. And I guess that is a natural part of the death process. But to witness it firsthand and to have it be so close with my mother and father was definitely a learning experience for me. And I try to use all these learning experiences in my job and in my life. You interface with aging and dying as a career, and you've had to deal with it as a son. You certainly have cultivated a lot of wisdom in this. What do you wish people knew about aging and dying? Sometimes I would like the family to remember what the person was like when they were in their full power. I'm 49 years old. I'm somewhere near my full power, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Someday my powers will diminish. And I hope my children remember me at my full power and not at my diminished power. Sometimes when you see a person laying there dying, it's hard to remember what they were like. Sure, there's pictures or old home movies, and that's helpful. But in the moment, it's not always helpful. So what I would like people to remember is that this was once a whole person. Perhaps they're not whole right now due to illness, disease, decay. But they were once a whole person, and I would hope that they would remember that. 
I would hope so too. And it sounds to me like what you're talking about is trying to create like a dignified memory of a person's whole life. And it seems also to me that so much of your work is wrapped up in fostering dignity in the elderly communities. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about how your work on a day-to-day basis helps to provide a bona fide sense of dignity for the elderly communities in and around Chicago. I try to talk to everybody the same way. I talk to my children, the way I talk to strangers, the way I talk to employees, the way I talk to clients. I try to project the same ideas and I try to have my consistent personality. So I think my clients appreciate that a lot. For example, I might go into somebody's home, they're not feeling well, I'll see them lying in a bed and I go, hey Tom, how you doing today? I won't speak softly. I won't uh, baby the person. I will talk to them like I talk to anyone else. And then usually, usually they'll respond to me like anyone else. And I think that's important. I've seen many senior care workers, not people who work for me, senior care workers walk into an older person's room, put their hands on their knees and say, and how are we doing today, Mr. Johnson? Like they're three years old or something like that. And that used to drive me crazy if I would see somebody talk down to an older person because they're not a child. They're a full grown adult and maybe they're not doing well, but please don't talk to them like they're stupid or they're immature. Talk to them like a regular person. And that's what I try to do all the time. And that's what I try to tell our people to do. Sammy, I love that you bring your true authentic self to even the most challenging situations. And I'll bet that's part of what makes you so great at what you do. I got to say, though, I have this, uh, this listener, a loyal listener to the podcast, Dr. Patrick Baker. I love the guy. He's been real supportive through and through. And I know he's going to bust my butt if I don't dive into some of the granular detail of your working life. So if you'll just help me as I pivot, maybe dial it back a little bit. Look, I don't know too many small to medium-sized business owners. So if you could just give me a sense of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe this. At its most basic level, like what does an average work day look like for you? Are you in the office most of the time? Are you driving around from Shiva to Shiva, from, uh, from client to client? Well, thankfully, I don't have to go to too many Shivas, but I do go to some. But what I would say is that I wear a lot of different hats. Sometimes I'm doing the sales hat, the marketing hat, the HR hat, the payroll hat, the training and development hat. So that to me is what being a small business owner is, wearing a lot of hats and being able to transition from one to the next. Now I have my strengths, which is dealing with people, dealing with the people that are the caregivers and dealing with the people that are the clients. That is my strength. My weakness might be my paperwork, 
But that's why I have people in the office to help me with that. So I think that's another thing a small business owner has to do, figure out what their strengths are and then hire to support him or herself in the areas that they're a little weaker in. So I am in the office, I would say, about half of my day, and then I'm out and about the rest of the day. Lots of times I'm checking on clients, making sure that they're happy. I like to drop in sometimes, say hello, because as you know, I like to kibitz. So I like to drop in and say hello, but also it gives me a chance to say hello to the caregiver and saying, hey, how are you? Are you doing okay? You have everything you need. Here's a box of masks. Maybe you ran out of masks. Here's some uh, gloves. Then I'm also able to see, is the client happy? Do they have food in the refrigerator? Uh, are they taking their pills? I like to, it's a, a way for me to kibitz like I do, but also supervise the process of people being out in the field. So I'm half in the office and half out in the field. But I can't think of a better way to describe being a small business owner than moving from one thing to the next without losing my mind. I would like to tell you, Daniel, that I thought owning my own business would be glamorous. <laughs> and when you say that to other business owners, they usually laugh at you. But that's uh, that's my naivete. I thought this was going to be great. I thought I could take long lunches, maybe run out to the Cub game once in a while. And I could do those things if I didn't want to have a business. But as it turns out, I spend <laughs> all my waking hours thinking about my business or my children and wife. And the only reason I work so hard is so that I could spend some time with my wife and children. Is it stressful to wear all those hats and to wholeheartedly engage in your project of providing dignity and empathy for elderly people? Somebody said to me recently that owning your own business is difficult because you have to have some tough conversations with people. And he was right, because sometimes I have to have tough conversations where the customer isn't happy with something or the caregiver tells me, I don't feel like working today and I'm not coming in tomorrow either. And we have to scramble to find somebody to cover for them. So there's a lot of conversations that I have that I would rather not have. But as a small business owner, I force myself to have them. So you asked if I feel stress. Yes, I do. I don't feel the fear that I used to feel uh, when I first started. Like, is this thing going to get up off the ground and get moving? Because the elderly population in the United States of America is booming. No pun intended. The baby boomers are coming and people are living longer and people need caregivers. So I think my business will be okay for a while. So I don't feel the fear, but I do feel the stress of wearing all those hats, juggling all those balls in the air. I would imagine that you have become a remarkably adept juggler. I'm sure it looks smooth. And <laughs> right. I'll bet that most of your clients and most of your employees probably wouldn't even recognize when you are uber stressed. You got that gift. You keep it cool. And that should be enough, but it's not. Because before I let you go, I'm going to have to ask you, Sam, to share two stories. First, if you could share a story of a professional failure, just like when the wheels fell off the proverbial bus. And then to drive us home, the story of a professional triumph. When I was early on, I had a client who needed care. 
we provided them with a caregiver and she got sicker. And then the son who lived in California said he would guarantee as she got sicker that he would pay us. And when she died, he said, I'm not paying you. I've decided that I don't want to pay you. And if I had had a better contract in place with the mother and the son, I might have been able to collect the money that they owed us. But I was early on and I didn't have contracts in place. I thought people were as good as their word. And it turns out people are as good as their word because uh, we lost we lost some money on that thing. And after that, I realized that we had to do things a little bit more by the book. So that was a, a time when I lost at a time when I really couldn't afford to lose that much. But it was definitely a learning experience. I've got to be a little tougher. I'm a very nice guy. I love to work with people, but I also got to be a real businessman. So that was a a failure of mine that I learned a lot from. Can I ask you something about that real quick? Yeah, sure. Do you dig business? Like, do you get excited about, you know, growing the business? And are you enthusiastic when you think about the ways that your business can grow? That's a very interesting question. Because once I started to make a little bit of money, I was talking to a friend of mine and I was excited. He's an older friend of mine and uh, I trust his judgment. And I was telling him, hey, Stan, I, I'm really starting to make some money on this thing. This, this business is really starting to work. And Stan said to me, are you making a living? And I said, yeah, I'm making a living. He said, well, that's all you really need. Stan was right. I don't have to be a multinational conglomerate companions for seniors. I can make a living here in Chicago. I could spend time with my children while they're young and they still want to spend time with me. I could spend time with my wife. I could play tennis and I don't have to be the CEO of a giant corporation. I can make a living. Uh, we are currently in talks to start companions for seniors of Las Vegas. We have a former employee who moved out to Las Vegas, and he wants to start up a subsidiary uh, of Companions for Seniors out there and see if he can make a go of it. And he'd like me to help him get it up off the ground because I did do it here in Chicago. And I'm kind of excited about this because Las Vegas, there's a lot of retired people moving there. Las Vegas is growing like crazy. From what I understand, many people are leaving California to move to Las Vegas because there's no state income tax rate and the weather is good. And it is Las Vegas after all. So we are in talks about expanding our company. And if it worked in Las Vegas, I'm sure it could work in other places where there are elderly populations. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. Ain't no place like Vegas for better and for worse. Well, I'm sorry to hear that sometimes the business side of things can be a bit of a disappointment. But I know you, and I know that you've been successful, and I know that you've learned from some of your failures, business and otherwise. So can you help me end this truly enjoyable discussion on the note of triumph? Daniel, I'm doing what I love. I'm helping people. I'm helping a population that sometimes is overlooked. I'm making a living doing it. I'm doing it in the city of my youth. I'm a very grateful person. Right on, man. Look, Sam, I I believe in you. I haven't had the pleasure 
of Kibitzen with you for, <laughs> I mean, it's probably been 30 years, mm-hmm. 25 years. And I have such fond memories of you. And I've been hoping to get you on the Studs podcast for a long time. And sir, you sure do deliver. Sam, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. It has been a true pleasure. And thank you for all you do for supporting elderly communities. It's kind of beautiful, man. Thanks a lot, Daniel. It was an honor to be here, and I had a lot of fun. I told you all a real mensch indeed. It doesn't get much better than Sam Tatel. Earnestness and empathy personified. Now, this episode would have been the perfect season closer. But I couldn't pass up the golden opportunity to check in with a couple more Chicagoans before I wrap up season five. So join me next week when I'll have the unique opportunity to dive into the world of hospitality industry maven Justin Arnett Graham and chef Nariba Shepard. These two host a podcast about working in the service industry, and I get to host them and to create a space to help them reflect on and celebrate the 10th episode of their stellar podcast, Terms of Service. Trust me, you won't want to miss that one. All right, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you got the means to give a few, consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash studs. Yo, and don't forget to send me a question about studs. Hit me up at Gmail. That's studspod at gmail.com. Facebook, studspod Berlin. Or Twitter, at studspod. I'll figure out the Instagram thing later. I Should I Snapchat? Do I have to Snapchat? Is that still a thing? I'm told I should be on Clubhouse. I uh, All right. Look, Chicago's open for business. Berlin is hopping. Today is the summer solstice. Let's get back into it, y'all. Get while the getting's good. Love y'all. And I'll see you next week. Hey, we did it. <laughs> and in the five minutes I have left, yeah. I have to ask you a question. And you need to tell me if it's possible that my memory here is accurate, okay? Okay. Because you don't know this, but you had a profound influence on my life because in, let's say, 1988, I was 12 years old, you were 16 or 17, and my family was over at your family's house, and I was walking up your carpeted stairway, and I believe your bedroom when you're going up the stairway was to the left. And there was music coming out of it. Now, at this point, all I really cared about was like, I was really into professional wrestling and the band Kiss. Mm. And the interface between those two was sort of like where my aesthetic was. I liked Harley Davidson's. I liked uh, oily, muscled up guys, apparently. And I liked the band Kiss. All of the show of it, mm-hmm. right? And I, I was going into your room and my brother, my older brother was in your room and I heard, out here in the fields, I fight for my meals. And I had never had exposure 
to the who or any rock and roll quite like it. And I came into the room and you and my brother were doing something. I just sort of laid on your bed and I listened to the first couple tracks of Who's Next on your CD player. I also had not seen a CD player yet. You probably got it for your bar mitzvah. (laughs) I was, it was like it was the first day of the rest of my life. And I remember laying on your bed, hearing the who, and the very next day, I went to the record shop down the street and I bought a tape. I bought the Who's Next tape and I bought a Who t-shirt. And I wore my Who t-shirt to Six Flags Great America that day and I felt about as cool as I could feel. And so I know that you had this impact, but here is my memory that you need to confirm or deny. Did you have a poster of Jimi Hendrix on your wall in your bedroom at your parents' house? Because my memory is that I was laying on your bed looking at Hendrix, listening to The Who, and just having my life changed. Was there a Hendrix poster? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I'm sorry. I really don't know 100%, but I think so. It's in the realm of possibility at the very least, right? Yes. So I'm going with it, and I'll tell you why. (laughs) Because it was the who and Hendrix, but in particular in this case, Hendrix, that was my gateway drug. Because then I found the blues. And when I started going down the blues rabbit hole, that's when I fell in love with thinking about history. Hmm. And next thing you know, I'm studying history, and I've been teaching history for two decades and it started in your bedroom. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for that memory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for playing the Who in 1988, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You don't want to hear this. Okay. But you're very good at this. You are intelligent. You seem interested. I hope you are interested. You're funny. You're poignant. You're probing. I think you're very good at this. So I wanted to say, nice job. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate your kind words. You make it real easy. You're willing to be vulnerable. You shared some things. And I know your work is hard sometimes, man. And I, I, I uh, you know, look, you know, lost my moms. And, uh, you know, we're losing a generation. And just know. And we're the, adult, we're the adults now, which is frightening. It is frightening. We we know we, we we know enough about ourselves to know how frightening that is indeed. Um, Wait, one no, more thing. One more thing. Tell me. I like when your Chicago accent comes through because I know you've been living over for it. But every once in a while, you know that a that a sound comes through. I just think it's funny. My daughter, yeah. she'll come out of the room in the morning, and you know a sound. You know, like I am. You know, I sound like a dopey Chicagoan. And she went on those days. She'll be like, "Do you talk to Zadie last night? Do you talk to Zadie?" I'm like, "I'm like, why?" She's like, "Because you say D's and D's and this and that." She's like, "You must have talked to Zadie. You talked to Zadie. You did. You t- you talked to your cousin Floppy." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." And she got, it seeps in. It seeps in. I I know it's so it's so unbecoming to a lot of people, but I have <laughs> such an affection for the sound of the Chicago accent. It is what it is, as they say. So you do a Malinati's pizza with the family on Sunday night? Is that a I thing? I think so. I'm the only one who likes it. It's a shame. What's wrong with these people? I don't really know. It's 
It's it's really a shortcoming as a father. <laughs> <laughs>